Just days after its bid to open a scrapyard on the southeast side was rejected, General Iron's parent company tried setting up again on the north side. It failed there too, but it's trying again. And I'll talk with David Manilow about restaurants, and he'll share highlights from a conversation he had with longtime Chicago restaurant operator Joe Carlucci about the changing nature of the industry. The whole restaurant experience has been raised tremendously, and I would say customers' expectations have really risen. I think largely because they're more well-traveled. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Wednesday, April 6th. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. All right, David Manilow is back for our weekly conversation about the food service industry. And you talked recently with Joe Carlucci, and he gave another glimpse into the food service world. Tell me about that conversation. Yeah, Joe, you know, first of all, I'm a, I'm a big fan of anyone who um, has their name kind of on the title on the door of the restaurant. Sure. Right. So Carlucci, Joe Carlucci has run Carlucci's in Chicago at different variations of them since 1984. His first one started in uh, Halstead and Webster. Then he had one in Rosemont. Then he went in Downers Grove. And now he's just moved to um, 400 East Randolph in that Lakeshore East neighborhood, some call it Loop East. I've heard it called Outer Drive East. Um, but it's brand new. It's getting all kind of accolades. And it's a fine dining Italian place. And, you know, Joe's an interesting guy because, you know, he's seen the restaurant world change. And um, he really believes, uh, like I kind of do, that the restaurants are more than just about, you know, how is your service? What do you have to eat? There's a certain energy. There's a certain theater that restaurants really need to provide to make people want to come back. Sure, sure. And and in your conversation, what did he have to say maybe about how the industry has evolved over that time? He ha- has a very interesting vantage point being in the industry so long. He said, now you just need to bring your A game every night. You just do. Back then, you know, you could be hit and miss. And I think there's partially because there weren't nearly as many restaurants back then. I remember when we opened... If 10 restaurants would open, maybe four would be good and the other ones would be okay. Now, if 10 restaurants opened up, all 10 are really good. The talent level is really, really there. The owners are really sharp people. They're focused, researched. The whole restaurant experience has been raised tremendously. And I would say customers' expectations have really risen, I think largely because they're more well-traveled. I think they have now access to some of the food that they couldn't get only in restaurants and they're doing these things at home. But I would say that what really has changed for us is you have to really be on your game with every single detail that you do in a restaurant. And largely it's because I think the customers have gotten more demanding and sharper and and more knowledgeable. And one, competition makes everybody better, without question. Yes. And two, you know what people say to me, people in the restaurant business say to me for years, it's like they use the example of like the food network. 
making everybody smarter and more knowledgeable about food and restaurants. So they'll know what dishes are and ingredients are and things like that. You know, they're walking knowing it. Yes, and access to your show with when Check Please was on. I mean, you know, you had so many diverse kind of culinary escapades there that people got turned on to so many things that they never even knew existed. And people have a passion for food. I mean, food and music are great common denominators for people to kind of get involved with each other and, and knowing and seeing things they never would have experienced before if they hadn't seen them on your show or maybe on the Food Network or something like that. It goes back to what I said earlier. It, it's their expectations. And I think their knowledge has increased tremendously as well. That's interesting. How, how much of a role do you think that the Food Network has played in changing customers' palates and expectations? Well, I think the Food Network was first. And now I think it's it's the Food Network. You know, they, they evolved over time, right? There's a lot of competition shows and things like that where, you know, back in the day, there was a lot of recipe, a lot of cooking shows. But now, I mean, you can just, you can go on YouTube and you can yeah. find absolutely everything from, you know, some guy, you know, traveling the world in Asia and showing you street food to, you know, you know, recipes to the world's biggest pizza. I'm telling you, I just... <laughs> You can just peruse YouTube all day long if you feel like it and uh, you can find it. But it just it's increased. You know, I used to get that a lot. Um, even in, the, in my check, please life, uh, you could see people's you know knowledge just grow mm. over time. You know, That's I started really Joe started in 84. I started that in 2001. But you could absolutely just see it. Just people just understanding it more. Yeah. Yeah. And then what about the the talent pool in the culinary world here in Chicago? That's a that's a great question. Well, I I do believe this in in, in uh, the culinary world, like every world, you know, competition makes everybody better. Chicago, when Joe started in '84, still really much more of a meat and potatoes town. There were Italian restaurants and uh, steakhouses and whatever. And then Chicago uh, became just like this culinary center of the country, and in some ways, like the avant-garde center of the universe. And so chefs started moving here. You could look at, you know, kind of like restaurant trees. First, it was the Charlie Trotter tree and all the chefs that came out of that. I think there's a Grant Ackett's tree from, um, you know, Alinea. He worked at Trio before that. There's like, there's the Michael Cornick, there's the Paul Kahn. There's all these places that people have worked at and with who have then started their other restaurants. And you now have this great, great talent pool in Chicago. I think you know, is still innovating and still, you know, providing like really, really quality uh, meals. I understand you talked with him about uh, the role that digital tools play, particularly Yelp, which I think makes a lot of restaurant operators really cringe when you even say the, the Y word. I think you're absolutely right. Although he had a really much more generous response. I think some of the uh, remarks and some of the reviews, it gives people more influence than they deserve to have. But on the other hand, you know, I've, we've had some things written about us that weren't very favorable, but were very true. And it gives us time to, okay, let's reflect. You know, we think we're really good, but somebody else didn't think that when they showed up last night. So, you know, we can't get mad at them for writing something negative if it really happened to them. We want to know about it. So in a sense, it part of it is good. And part of it is if it's well-intended, that's fine. And some of them you can ferret through that aren't well-intended and meant to be mean or snarky or something. But the majority of it, I think, 
it has its place. Yeah. I think that's a great attitude because I don't, I'm not sure every chef or owner has that attitude when they get a negative review. Well, no, because, you know, nobody likes to hear something bad about themselves at all, you know, and, and listen, there's no such thing as perfection in our business. So we try for excellence. So we could go there, but perfection is just not something that we can focus on because it's, it's, you know, you just can't reach it. Everybody has a different idea of what their expectations are. And then they could walk into a restaurant mad at their, mad at their host or mad at their guests or, you know, not feeling good and then take it out on us. And, and, and you're doing a dance with people, you know, you're trying to be respectful and you're trying to provide great service. And sometimes people are just mad. And you never know who's walking in the front door. Right. Unless you know them as regular customers, you really don't know them. So you're always a little bit on edge as to, you know, what the night's going to bring. And there, there's a certain excitement to that also. Right. But, you know, you always try and feel out a room that uh, before you go over and table touch or talk to somebody is what's going on there and are they having a good time? And if they're not, we'd rather know about it then than finding out about it in a review. I don't think it's the typical response from chefs and restaurant owners. They're like, are they crazy? Why would they write that? Who are these people? And, you know, they do have a point, you know, in some ways, because a lot of times these people are just kind of anonymous. But, you know, back in the day, I know you come from a restaurant family. It was the, there's the adage of, you know, if, if you have a good experience, you'll tell, you know, whatever it's one person. If you have a bad experience, you'll tell 10. Sure. So now you can tell everybody. Well, and Yelp has its own issues because you'll you'll go to a restaurant's listing on Yelp sometimes and it'll maybe there'll be like a one star review. But the reason they give is something like I got dumped there or I had it was the weather was so bad and I had the worst time getting there, which has nothing to do with the restaurant. But people kind of conflate that on there. I use Yelp more of like a geo tracking of like where places are. So if I'm, you know, I'm in a neighborhood or I want to go somewhere because I, I, I know enough. I think about restaurants where I can kind of parse through it. But People now write takeout reviews, delivery reviews, and it's kind of lumped in to the restaurant's overall rating, which is I live. And I do appreciate somebody who might say this is for a delivery review only. I get that. But you still get these things. Although, I, you know, I don't know, four stars, four and a half stars. I've been to places that have four stars out of five that are fabulous. I've been to places that have four and a half stars out of five that I would absolutely never go back to. So take it with a grain of salt. But that's interesting, though, that, that you mentioned that Carlucci sort of asks first, is this even true? You know, should I even listen to this? Maybe there's some merit to it. That I think that you have to come from a pretty confident place to, to approach that way. You know, uh, what I was saying before about his name being on, uh, you know, the, the, the door, the restaurant, the awning, the facade, is it shows, I think anyone who does that has a certain amount of pride and a certain amount of confidence. Obviously, we're known for hospitality and food, but we've also like to create a hospitality and experience when you're there. So it's not just that you'll remember the food or you'll remember the service. You'll remember now the decor, the wine list, food presentation, you know, some tableside action with our pastas. And Robert, who's our uh, manager and sommelier, second level sommelier, he has a double decant that he does at the table where he flips the wine bottle into the decanter and flips the decanter back up on side of the wine bottle so that it gets a double decant and an aeration. But 
the theater of it again is is very good. You and I know people don't go to restaurants to eat. There are a thousand other reasons why people show up. So we have to take advantage of that and not just pay attention to one thing. We have to pay attention to all the senses, you know, our music or our, our food, our decor. You know, we want to make an Italian experience. So we've imported the floor from Italy, some of the furniture that was imported from Italy, all the music that we play, our Italian artists. So, you know, it, it all goes to a, a whole sensory experience, not just come in, eat and get out. And then that's how you remember the restaurant. We want many things going on for you to appreciate while you're there. So he's also participating in restaurant week. Right, which is ending at the end of this week. And it's no longer a week. It's, <laughs> it's Right. It's, I think, 17 days, but it, it, it's ending at the end of this week. And uh, he has a $55 prefix, which is, I, I had, it was really, really one of the best values I've, I've had at a restaurant week. I had an arancini, a bucatini, a branzino, and a tiramisu, and they were all wonderful. And I think he said that the, even the, the branzino was like 40 bucks by itself. It's coming to an end uh, this week on Sunday, but uh, hopefully uh, I'll report back that, uh, you know, it was a, it was success for the restaurants who participated. Sure. Did did he talk any about the, the role that Restaurant Week plays for him and for his business? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, he, he's, you know, like like all good restaurants, they're businessmen. And so when you can kind of get on board something where Choose Chicago has some marketing muscle and they're getting their the restaurant's name out there to all those people, which they, they couldn't do without, you know, spending a bunch in marketing or advertising. I think that what people do at restaurant week is they go out and explore new places. He happens to be a new place that's only been open for three, four months. And so he wants people to, to know that he's there. I will say this about Lakeshore East. When I was growing up in Chicago, the, the, everything was kind of scattered. There weren't, there weren't places all over, you know, restaurant neighborhoods, so to speak. There was like Rush Street where you could go out. But now you have all these restaurant neighborhoods, West Loop, River North, Bucktown, Wicker Park, Andersonville, Logan Square, Lincoln Park, Hyde Park, Chatham, Pilsen, Avondale, South Loop. I mean, just keep on going. There's all these great neighborhoods. Lakeshore East was never... First of all, it didn't exist. When we researched the neighborhood, we saw that there were very few restaurants in a very, very densely populated area, populated not only by high rises of residents, but also office buildings like Blue Cross Blue Shield, Aon, Baker McKenzie, and Prudential Building and all that. And uh, I said, well, this is an underserved location, underserved area. And then the space actually just kind of came to us and architecturally. It gave us an opportunity to kind of show all the things that we like to do with Italian food and drama of, of the space and, and things like that. And that's how it all went. It's smart. It's just very dense, charming. I think Avli, the, the Greek spot of which they have three or four, is also right down the street. But, uh, you know, it gives you an option to go if you're on Michigan Avenue or in one of those buildings or at your, you know, on the Prudential Building, for instance, it's right down the street. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, what's coming up in the week ahead? Several weeks ago, I talked about three restaurants that I wanted to try. Yes. I have tried them. Okay. So I'm going to give you my thoughts on um, the three restaurants I want to try, including um, Kasama, which is nominated for uh, James Beard Best New Restaurant in the Country. So I'll let you know my thoughts. Sounds good. All right. Well, we'll catch up next time. Thanks so much, David. Okay. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, a marijuana shop wants to take over the old Rainforest Cafe downtown. We'll talk about that and more right after this. 
Cranes invites all general counsels, chief legal officers, and senior in-house counsels to our general counsel breakfast on May 17th. The event will feature Chicago's top general counsels offering perspective on current legal trends in business and litigation. Plus, our exclusive panel takes a closer look at how general counsels can best manage the risks and challenges in today's landscape. CLE credit will be available. To learn more and find out how to attend, visit chicagobusiness.com slash events. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Just days after its bid to open a metal shredding operation on the southeast side was rejected by city officials, General Iron looked to reopen at its former longtime site in Lincoln Park. Subsidiaries of Reserve Management Group, which bought General Iron in 2019 and planned to reopen it under the Southside Recycling name, applied to return to the north side along the Chicago River in February. Through three separate applications, each reportedly filed on February 23rd, the company sought to have the city reinstate its north side permits just five days after the city denied its application to open on the southeast side, following protests from environmental activists and opposition from the EPA. Officials from the Chicago Department of Public Health nixed the Lincoln Park applications in March, saying the special use permit in effect for the site had lapsed and the company didn't properly apply for the permit under new environmental rules for large recycling facilities that took effect in June of 2020. If the company wanted to reapply for the permits, it would have to first apply for all the necessary zoning approvals, including for operating along the river, and be in compliance with new air quality rules that the city approved last year. On March 25th, the company appealed the decision to the Department of Administrative Hearings. A date for the hearing has not been set. Last year, Exelon CEO Chris Crane paid out a third of his stake in the company in a divorce settlement. His holdings fell to just over 443,000 shares as of March, down from just over 662,000 shares the year before, that according to SEC filings. Meanwhile, Chicago-based Exelon isn't yet disclosing what Crane's new compensation package is now that he's running a much smaller company than the one he managed before. Reporter Steve Daniels notes that the Baltimore-based spinoff includes the country's largest fleet of nuclear power plants and one of the largest retail suppliers of electricity and natural gas. For 2021, while the two business units were intact, Crane's compensation totaled $15.8 million, up 4% from $15.2 million the year prior, according to the company proxy filed last month. His salary was $1.3 million and his cash bonus was $2.2 million. His stock awards totaled $11 million, with the remainder of his compensation mostly in retirement benefits. The combination of cash conversions when performance shares are paid to executives and Chris Crane's divorce settlement has left him with one of the utility industry's lowest levels of stock ownership. Daniels also reports that, by contrast, James Robo, who just recently stepped down as CEO of Florida-based NextEra Energy after 10 years, holds 1.25 million shares, according to the company Proxy. Ralph Izzo, CEO of New Jersey-based Public Service Interest Group since 2007, holds nearly 2 million shares. And Thomas Fanning, 12-year CEO of Atlanta-based Southern Company, which is the parent company of Naperville-based NICOR, owns more than 822,000 shares. Morningstar has agreed to buy data and news service provider Leveraged Commentary and Data, or LCD, from S&P Global for as much as $650 million in cash. 
Chicago-based Morningstar will pay $600 million at closing and agreed to make an additional payment of $50 million six months later if certain conditions related to the transition of LCD customers are met, according to a statement. The sale was required by European regulators to clear S&P's $39 billion acquisition of IHS Market Limited, which closed at the end of February. The deal is expected to close in the third quarter. When Rainforest Cafe closed its pretty-hard-to-miss River North restaurant more than a year ago, it wasn't clear what would go into that space. Now, as Crane's John Pletz reports, PTS, the owner of Consume Cannabis, wants to relocate a marijuana shop from Milwaukee Avenue on the far northwest side to that spot in River North. If the deal gets approval from the city's Zoning Board of Appeals, it would add to a growing cluster of cannabis shops in River North. Consume would join Cresco Lab's Sunnyside Dispensary at 436 North Clark, along with Ascend by Mocha at 216 West Ohio, and Pharmacan's Verilife store at 60 West Superior. GRI Holdings, a company that won two of the retail licenses in last year's lotteries, has also applied to the Zoning Board of Appeals for cannabis zoning at 612 North Wells. As Pletz also notes, one potential challenge facing the deal is a state law that prohibits dispensaries from locating within 1,500 feet of one another, and at least two other dispensaries appear to be within that range. That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, David Manilow. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to find your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earside Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.